When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. By the time I had passed 60 degrees north, the parallel marking the border between BC and the Yukon, it was like the sun had stopped setting. I went to sleep when it was light, and I woke up when it was light. The days grew long and ran endlessly into one another, indistinguishable except by the few hours of sleep I put between them. The closest it came to dark was an unending twilight. Time became separated only by the numbers in the pages of my journal, and the stars faded away, as did any hopes of seeing the northern lights. It took more than two months to get to the wild far north, Yukon territory. We had made it in 58 days to the border between British Columbia and Yukon, 58 days on the bike. It was a hard trek, brutal at times, but also full of beautiful moments, the kind that make the suffering worth it. For the first time in a long while, I felt a quiet I had been searching for, hidden in the tall trees and wild mountains. I set out with a group of 20 friends on June 4th, 2016 to ride our bikes from our college in the heart of Texas to Anchorage, Alaska. More than 4,000 miles on roads, not all of them paved, not all of them leading somewhere. Everyone in my group had a different reason for riding. Some just wanted to spend a summer outside and didn't need any other reason. Some struggled with depression or wanted to prove something to themselves and thought this was the way to do it. We weren't all cyclists. In fact, someone never ridden a bike before. We taught them on the highways in Texas in the backdrop of the American West. But experienced or not, we all knew this trip meant more to us than just biking. Personally, I was looking to heal, or at least distract myself. My mom died nearly a year before we left for the trip. Her long fight with cancer left me devastated and a little lost. I felt like I was missing a piece of myself. I knew I couldn't get her back, but I felt like I should at least be able to still feel her somewhere. Maybe if I went far enough north, far enough away to where it was quiet and the mountains were big and nameless, I'd be able to find her again. We rode highways and back roads, stopping at every river to swim, racing wild horses along the road. 
The solitude of the trees and far-off mountains quietly took us in its arms. Being so close to a group of people for so long can be tough, but we all got along on the bike, sharing stories. A hundred miles on the bike can tear down a lot of barriers between people. I had plenty of time to be alone, too, especially when cities faded away and vastness replaced skylines. Sometimes, we would let the distance between us grow so large that we would only see another person if they stopped on the side of the road to pee. I loved the solitude. It wasn't lonely. It was freeing. Sometimes, I went miles without touching the handlebars, or I'd take off all my clothes and bike in the nude just because I could. But other times, biking the landscape felt more like a cruel love affair than a road trip. Rainstorms and hail and heat and broken glass, it threw it all at us, and we felt it all. But my legs stayed solid, pumping away rhythmically beneath me. We biked through wind, rain, and snow. If lightning struck, we kept going. We only stopped if it got too close. We outran tornadoes in Oklahoma, waded out a storm in an old horse barn in Montana, Huddled like penguins, our bikes cast carelessly aside in the mud. We learned to brace for the logging trucks up north. In a strong enough crosswind, the backdraft of a semi could blow us off the road. Or into it. I stopped counting the close calls. Gradually, it became something like a meditation practice to survive biking each day, and then to repeat it again and again. Our motto became, embrace the suck. We even cherished it, because we were surrounded by each other in nothingness. And this is what we wanted, right? This is what we signed up for? To break ourselves down, to struggle, to overcome? That was the adventure. That was the point, that it was hard. It bonded us, put things in perspective. I relished the brief shade of a cloud, the slightest decline, a fox crossing the road, wild and beautiful, indifferent to me, anything to interrupt the cadence of our pedals and the eternal road. We pushed farther north, farther west, the mystical allure of Alaska pulling us forward. We followed the Rockies, tracing the topographic lines of the American West. A month after we started, we made it to Canada. In almost another month, we arrived at the Alaskan Highway. But after two months on the road, I still hadn't found her. For a year, we had talked about reaching the Alaskan border, then Anchorage, then a meal in a restaurant and a night in hotel sheets would drift into a plane ticket back home to flat, hot Texas. And the road and hardships and tears would become a distant dream, just as Alaska was when we started. And we would slip back into our lives, our school and work, and we'd adjust. And this would all be over. But when we made it to Teslin, ten days away from finishing our trip, our bodies were weary and breaking. Our frames had grown thin, our cheeks hollow. We looked nearly malnourished, besides our legs. And even those looked ungodly with their stark, bike-shorts tan lines. That day's ride had been a particularly rough one. The road was in poor condition and rolled up and down for hours. I reached the small village last. 
Teslin rested on the shore of one of the southern lakes of Yukon. The town comprised of a lodge, a grocery store, and a loop street off the Alaskan highway, with a handful of houses dotting one side. The large lake surrounded the town on three sides, and stretched its fingers into the mountains surrounding us. A crew of welders camped next to us on a park along the shore. They had been working on repairing the bridge into the village for the past month. One of the men, Jack, a middle-aged man with a wiry brown beard, offered to take me and my friend Oliver out to troll for trout on the lake. His body showed evidence of a lifetime of manual labor. Though slightly overweight, with a round paunch forming around his belt, he was not soft. Thin arms turned into masses of flesh below the elbow, like baseballs were folded under the skin. His hands looked large enough to be catcher's mitts, though they still had the agility to untangle fine fishing lines. His face cracked around the eyes from the sun and years of raunchy jokes. There was nothing delicate about the man, except maybe his eyes, which were gray like the water, striving to be blue. He led us down the rocky shore to an old dinghy with a small outboard motor on it. The line was tethered somewhere in the tall grass and he cursed his way into the thicket, not stopping until he untied the boat. He looked at us and said to get in. Oliver and I looked at each other and shrugged. By this time on our trip, we were used to accepting favors from people we met. It was our vagabond doctrine to never refuse an offer. Jack pushed the boat off and I pulled the oars out and rowed us away from shore. Then he pulled the motor on and steered us under the steel bridge into the widest part of the lake. Jack handed us each a pole and we cast out our lines. He lulled the engine and we let the lines drag. He offered each of us a beer and lit the cigarette hanging from his mouth. Jack didn't ask us why we were there. He didn't comment on us biking from Texas and we didn't bring it up. We just enjoyed the placid lake. He continued looking out towards the mountains in the distance. The water was glass, seamless until it ran into mountains. It neared 10.30 p.m., but it was still bright out. Jack kept calling it a nice night, and it was jarring. Summers in Texas have nice nights, hot and dark and brimming with cicadas. He steered the boat along the shore where the water met steep cliffs. There were small structures on a protruding section of rock. Jack pointed at them with his cigarette and said that they were the burial sites of the native people of the land. They built them with windows so their ancestors' souls could look out over the water. When we pulled back up to shore, it was nearly midnight. We took our catch to camp and laid them out on a wooden board. One of the fish gasped as it lay flat on the wood. Its gray gills flared out rapidly until they slowed. Jack took the knife and filleted the fish one by one. He either didn't notice or didn't care that one was still alive because he treated it as indiscriminately as the rest. Its gills lay flat as Jack sliced it open. He gutted it and asked me to hold out my hand. He dropped a small maroon ball into my palm. It reminded me of a chestnut, only more delicate. It remained still for a moment. Then it moved. The heart still moves even after the fish is dead, Jack told me. The little heart twitched in my palm. I looked at it with the mud in my hand, my pale flesh wet and cold, tinted orange in the finally setting sun. It felt so light, but when it beat, it had a momentary flutter of weight. It struggled to keep going, even though it had no body to keep alive. Oliver cooked the fish over a fire, and I held the heart in my hand, open palm, facing up. I waited until it stopped beating, and then I put it down. I crawled into my tent just as the fire went out. Tomorrow, we had a long ride into Whitehorse where Jack promised we'd find a bar and some warm food in a lodge by the river. 
I went to sleep that night with the feeling of the little heart beating in my hand, warm and slowly twitching, like holding a sparrow. The rhythm seemed to match my own heart, slow and uncertain, and in the warm night it pounded in my ears. At some point, sleep found me. I woke up with my hands empty. The weight of the heart had gone. I sat by the lake. I could still make out the burial sites on the distant cliff. And not all at once, but in a slow build. I felt again. I could feel my mom. She was there. The reason I thought I had lost her was because I was still looking for a person. And she wasn't a person anymore. But she was still there in the other things. In the moments when I stood before a mountain, or caught trout with a strange new friend in the Yukon, or rode my bike on desolate roads, those were the moments where I didn't miss her. The moments I felt closest to being myself, being outside, those were the moments I felt her. The last thing she told me was not to be angry, not to let a bad thing follow me for the rest of my life. She told me to try and make something good out of it, no matter how impossible it seemed. And learning to be myself again was the first step. The mountains and endless roads left no room for any bitterness in me and forced me to appreciate the little things, the wind at my back, fresh mountain water on swollen feet, and the shelter from a coming storm. It's been three years since that trip. I've been back to school and changed cities, but I still miss those lakes like glass and tall, nameless mountains. I try to find time in my day-to-day to get into nature. Even if it's an urban trail, it's where I can have conversations with my mom. And if they're one-sided, they don't feel like it when I'm outside. The pain of that loss doesn't ever go away, not fully, but it does get better. Some days, it still hurts more than others, but some days, it feels as if her heart is in my hand, still beating. I'm John Flynn, and this is my short. Thank you to John Flynn for sharing his story. John just finished grad school in Rhode Island and is back visiting the Yukon to pedal a few more miles on the Alaskan Highway. If you like what you hear on the diaries, here are a few ways you can support us. Follow us on Instagram at dirtbag underscore diaries, where you can see photos from all the stories we share. It's pretty cool. Rate us on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Or pledge your support by going to the website and clicking pledge. Or pull a hat trick and do all three. Whatever you choose, it really helps us. Thank you so much. Music today by Ketza, Kai Engel, Nisei23, Sergei Karamazov, and John Barry. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Mies Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars and Becca Cahal. I'm Fitz Cahal. And you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.